اشہد اللہ وحدہ لا شریق اشہد محمد اعوذ باللہ من الشیطان الرجیم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم I want to answer a question that is commonly asked from members of our jamaat and that is that um, while we are all Sunnis then why do we want to um, how shall I say uh, attract abuse or be abused by saying that uh, we are Ahmadis now you see the thing is because the reason that is given is that everyone has the same beliefs so we should all be one and it amazes me that why should this uh, only apply to uh, Lahori MDs and not anyone else if having the same fundamental beliefs makes us all the same then why do we have Shias and why do we have Sunnis they both have the same fundamental beliefs so why this division you can talk about politics and so on okay that's fine but then why is it that uh, within the Sunni community you have uh, Wahhabis and you have Diobandis and you have Ahli Hadith and uh, so on and so forth um, and uh, all of them are divided into so many different groups all of them believe the same thing don't they all believe in uh, Allah as the divine creator, don't they all believe in If I were to relate all the names, I'll probably be here until five o'clock. Why? Well, all the fundamental beliefs are one, so why aren't we all one? Obviously, there is something more than uh, <coughs> those uh, fundamental beliefs that determines what group or community that you choose to belong to. One easy answer why we are Lahori MDs would be that when the British government carried out a census of India, Hazrasab sent out instructions that those who were members of his Jamaat should say Muslim of the Ahmadiyya group. So that should be enough for a Lahori MD. But what I want to do is, I also want to look at some of the things that uh, people believe which make, make us different, totally different from any other group. Number one, all other groups believe that the Holy Quran is incomplete. Despite what their websites say, despite what their magazines say, despite what their Maulanas say, they all believe that the Holy Quran is incomplete 
and I'll give you an example. Shia Shias believe that there was a, co, uh, a chapter of the Holy Quran called Surah uh, Walayat, who was to succeed the Holy Prophet Muhammad, and it was in the Holy Quran and used to be recited. And Nauzubillah, uh, because Hazrat Umar and Hazrat Abu Bakr wanted to deprive Hazrat Ali of Khilafat, they deleted it from the Holy Quran. I'm not here to answer that objection. I mean, I can easily say, well, when Hazrat Ali became the Khalifa, why didn't he add it back in? That's the easy answer. But the point is, that means the Quran is not complete. If you take Sunnis, all of the Sunnis believe that punishment of adultery for a married person is death by stoning. Now, if you ask them, where is this mentioned in the Holy Quran, they just look at you. And the explanation is this, well you see Hazrat Abu Bakr had the whole of the all the revelation compiled into a copy of the Holy Quran. He tied it up with a string and he gave it to I think Hazrat Hafsa, uh, Hazrat Umar's daughter. And what did she do? She put it under her bed. Now, in the Arab culture, putting something below your feet is the ultimate insult that you can give someone. You remember, you remember when uh, you know, Saddam Hussein's statues were pulled down and all the commentators were saying that people are stepping on those because that is the ultimate insult and humiliation that you can subject someone to. So this lady, Hazrat Umar's daughter no less, knowing what her culture states, where does she put the Holy Quran? Under the bed. And when she lies on that bed, where are her feet? Above the Holy Quran. You see, these stories don't actually make sense. Now, and what happened? Well, what happened was, you see, this goat managed to get into her bedchamber and got under the bed and ate some of the pages of the Holy Quran. And one page had this what's called the verse of Rajam. The verse of stoning married adulterers to death was written. Now I find it very confusing because the Holy Quran says, uh, Allah in the Holy Quran says, I revealed it and I am a guardian over it. And yet a goat eats the divine revelation and God can't stop that goat. So how is God going to stop you and me from corrupting or changing the Holy Quran? But the, another point to remember is this. Did the goat actually read the Holy Quran and say, oh, here is the verse of stoning, I shall just eat that? Or did she just, did the goat just eat a page or more than one page? What else was on those pages? Was Surah Walayat that uh, Shias complain about? Was that on those pages? What else did the goat eat that we don't have access to? 
So despite their protestations, everything they do means that the Holy Quran is not complete. But then there is another idea that they have. And that is, there are some verses of the Holy Quran whose recitation is abrogated. So, yes, you're looking puzzled. That's because you're a Lahori Amdi. And that is because no one has actually told you what others believe. And that is because we've always said, we're in the West, if we say these things, others will use them to attack Islam. These verses of the Holy Quran, their recitation is abrogated. So they're not in the Holy Quran. And interestingly, there are some verses of the Holy Quran where the commandment is abrogated, but recitation is not. So they are in the Holy Quran. Mubarak is a teacher. Try constructing a textbook with this kind of conundrum. You work in the medical field, try getting a medical book that says, uh, you know these things, they're in here, but they're actually wrong. I just put them in for fun. Don't do them. And I, but I've put them in. The things that you need to do are actually not in this book. This is what this belief is saying. And on top of that, they then go on to say that uh, and at one point, Muslims believed that a huge number of verses of the Holy Quran had been abrogated. And then I think it was Ibn Arabi perhaps who went through all of them and reduced the number to 512. And then it went on and uh, Hazrat Shah Waliullah reduced it to 7. And it was Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad and following him Hazrat Mawlana Muhammad Ali who said no, no verse of the Holy Quran is abrogated. This is all nonsense about goats eating up parts of the, uh, of the Holy Quran. And as I said, if Surah Walayt was left out of the Holy Quran by Hazrat Abu Bakr and Umar anhum, why was it that Hazrat Ali didn't add it back in when he became the Khalifa and said it was left out for political, political reasons. So, we are not Sunnis because we are the only ones who believe that the Holy Quran is complete. From the bar of Bismillah to the last chapter, Surah Al-Nas. Last full stop. Nothing is abrogated, nothing is left out, nothing is missing. Ask any Sunni, ask any Shia to make this declaration and he will not do so. I was talking to uh, a Muslim, he's a very nice guy. Uh, he was a ticket checker at Slough Station and we used to meet every morning when I uh, arrived to uh, uh, catch my train. And he had a complaint about the Malvi of the local mosque. And his complaint was this. 
how can he be our imam this is in slav how can he be our imam when he doesn't know which verses of the holy quran are abrogated this was the main complaint against this this molana well of course it is an important issue because you know you might be uh, acting upon a verse that has been abrogated which would be un-islamic that is why you lahori empties because you don't believe in these fables and you don't believe in these stories you are lahori empties because every other sect will say my maulana says so they don't even bother with the hadith forget the quran the standard practice is to read the hadith which was compiled 200 years after the holy prophet and then if that hadith seems to contradict something that is in the holy quran what do you do you believe the hadith and you abrogate the holy quran something that was written down as it was being revealed committed to memory recited daily in uh, three prayers recited loudly daily recited from birth to the end that is not authentic but what was written down 200 years later which starts with an mustaq told mubarak and mubarak told muhammad ali and muhammad ali told mudassar and mudassar told faizan and faizan told me that the holy prophet said this that is more believable and acceptable than things that the holy prophet muhammad personally dictated and were written down there and that that was the first thing hazrat sahab said quran comes first that is why you lahori empties everyone else will say fiqh comes first my maulana comes first then comes fiqh then comes hadith then comes the holy quran but we say no the holy quran comes first and we have an example there was a ramadan and it was the last day and people came to the mosque and they were fasting and hazrat sahab was talking and Uh, he said well i had a revelation yesterday that uh, you know today is eid whether you want to fast or not and many people went home and they broke their fast and hazrat sahab heard about that and hazrat sahab called them and hazrat sahab said since when has mirza's revelation taken precedence over what is enshrined in islamic law you follow islamic law this is about what he I mean, later on a telegram arrived from lahore saying that it was actually eid on 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 on, on that day so you are lahori empties because you follow the quran and hadith and then people later on and you are also lahori empties because you do not say that hazrat maulana muhammad ali or hakim nuruddin rahmatullah alai they have written this and that is the end of the story you cannot do any more research you cannot find new meanings in the holy quran in the light of modern research and knowledge which have opened new meanings
someone will refer you to Imam Ibn Kaseer, someone will refer you to uh, Maulana Muhammad Shafi Diobandi, someone will refer, uh, refer you to uh, Mia Bashiruddin Mahmood Ahmad and so on. And it's happened. There was, a, you might remember uh, Mir Fazl, Dr. Mir Fazl, he's a professor of mathematics now in, uh, in Canada. He joined our Jamaat here. And uh, we came up with an interpretation of this verse that uh, the ants were talking to each other and they, they, they uh, said Solomon's um, uh, armies are coming. And he said, he put this to a Qadiani. And the Qadiani said, well, yes, it may be, but I have to believe what Mirza Bishiruddin Mahmud Ahmad Sahib has written in his uh, commentary of the Holy Quran. And he has written this. And you cannot even think of anything against what he has written. You're Lahori Ahmadis because your Jamaat says God gave you a brain. Use it. The only infallible person, the only infallible being is God. No Imam, no scholar, no one is infallible. You are the only Jamaat in the world that says that. Is there any other Jamaat where I can go to their center in December at Jalsa time and stand up and recite a verse of the Holy Quran and say, Hazrat Maulana Muhammad Ali Rahmatullah says this, but I've thought about it and this is what I think. Try and do that in any mosque. There's one a few doors down. Everyone will rush out to grab their shoes, not to put them on and leave the mosque, but to beat you with. People have been beat, beaten up in Sunni mosques simply for leaving their hands open when the azan was called. Let's take the person of the Holy Prophet Muhammad The person that the Quran says God created as an exemplar for you. In, adver in adversity, in poverty, while playing amongst riches, while a father, while a husband. He set an example, a general, a head of state. As a trader, as a businessman. In every sphere of life, he set an example for you that you can look at and say, yes. What do what do Ali Sunnat Wal Jamaat say about him? He married a nine-year-old girl. Is that believable? The story comes about in this way that uh, Hazrat Khatija Anhu, she passed away and uh, so the Holy Prophet he had to look after his, his household he depended on her a lot because uh, uh, she supported his mission he had to look after the kids and all this kind of thing um, and one day he met a lady in the street whose name I forget and she said what you need is a companion what you need is someone who can share your burden and the Holy Prophet said, well, in Makkah, 
people have given me such a bad name nauzubillah for my mission that who will marry me and this lady suggested two names one was hazrat aisha one was uh, i think hazrat sauda rizwullah taala uh, if i'm incorrect someone will correct me but listen to what this lady said you need someone to share your burden and look after your household so what's a 9 year old girl going to do is is she going to play with dolls or can the holy prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam go in and say you know this political issue has arisen today and i want to discuss it with you what advice do you give what's a 9 year old girl's reply going to be oh the dress on my doll is torn can she have a new dress please how does that help this lady's point was find someone to share your burden how is a 9 year old girl going to share this burden that the holy prophet is carrying but who believes that and who doesn't believe that the only jamaat in the world it was hazrat maulana muhammad ali sahab who did research and said that hazrat aisha was probably 18 at the time of the marriage and then it was um, um gulam nabi muslim sahab from our jamaat who did further research and showed that the probability is that uh, hazrat aisha was uh, 21 that makes sense he can the holy prophet muhammad sallam can share his burden and thoughts with someone who's 21 or even 18 because hazrat aisha was extremely intelligent and very mature but a 9 year old girl what is she going to share with him but then even more than that and you find this green molana modudi's uh, the fibul quran or anything they don't use the frank words i'm going to use they try and wrap them up but what they say is that the holy prophet did not marry marry the copt he was a part of his household without being married they say the holy prophet did not marry rehana she was a part of his household she lived with him like his wife but they weren't married do you want to be sunni and the story about hazrat zainab that she was married to the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam son adopted son and the holy prophet went and i'll skip the the rest of the story i, I mean i can't even be bothered to say it but anyway hazrat zaid comes home and it said uh, you know he realized that the holy prophet saw his wife and has fallen in love with the, with her and he then divorced her hazrat zainab was holy prophet's cousin they'd been brought up together 
he arranged her marriage with Zad. So he never seen her. I mean, you know, in these madrasas, mantik or logic is one of the subjects that is taught. Why don't these Maulanas apply this logic to these stories and see where they lead? Let's carry on apart from this. And Zad said, Talaq, 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 divorced Hazrat Zanib. Now, what does the Quran say you're supposed to do if there's a divorce? Period of waiting. There was no period of waiting. The story goes, Zanib packed up her bags and went to live with the Holy Prophet Muhammad. Number one, there is no iddat, there is no waiting period. And number two, what's missing? Nikah. This story is in... <coughs> What's the book called? <coughs> Muhammad in the light of uh, early sources or something like that by uh, a guy called Martin Lings. And this book was given $10,000 for being the best book on the life of the Holy Prophet Muhammad. I've tried to edit the actual stories <coughs> to tell you the language is so shameful in Islamic literature. The language of these stories is so shameful in the literature of Alice Sunnat Bal Jamaat that I cannot bear, it's hard to read it and I cannot bear to tell you exactly what is said. So who wants to be a Sunni? How are you going to answer? I mean, get onto a website um, answering Islam and see if with these views you can answer the objections they raise. And what about their view of Islam? Kill apostates. A Christian judge in South Africa was banging her head on the table, saying the Quran says, La ikraha fiddeen. There is no compulsion in religion. There is no compulsion. In fact, Mudassar came up with this interpretation, which I really like. There is no com compulsion in following any religion. You're not going to be forced to follow any religion at all. <coughs> Do whatever you want. Because the next part is the right path and the wrong path are clear. And the judge said, if some people, and, the, and the, 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 I forget the professor's name, Ghazi, Professor Mahmood Ghazi said, oh, well, joining Islam is a serious matter and you should think about it carefully and not just join Islam and then leave it. Well, the Quran says in the morning they say they are Muslims and then at midday they say they are not Muslims and then in the evening they say they are Muslims and then at night they say they are not Muslims. But Sunnis say you should cut their heads off. 
So how would they get the, a chance to change their mind and become Muslims again? But the point that the judge made was this. She said, I cannot believe that an intelligent person like Muhammad would be creating a fifth column amongst the Muslims. Because all that will happen is that people would want to leave Islam, but they'd be afraid of having their heads cut off. So on the face of it, they'll pretend to be Muslims. But then she raised another point. She said, Professor, you were saying that it's a serious matter for people to decide to become Muslims. It's not a joke that you say in the morning you're Muslims and then at midday uh, you're not a Muslim. So the professor said, what about Deen? The professor didn't know about Deen because Mudassar wasn't even married, but he's born. Yeah. She said, a baby is born to a Muslim household is automatically a Muslim. So does that baby, does that child when he grow, grows up have a right to leave Islam? The professor said no. And the judge said, but that negates your argument. You said you should think carefully. <clears throat> that baby didn't think carefully to become a Muslim. He was just born in a Muslim household. He was taken to the mosque. He was told to celebrate Eid. He was taught namaz. What chance did he have to do comparative religion um, and compare Christianity and Hinduism and whatever else so that he could join Islam? <coughs> when I was in Jammu, someone said to me that uh, so-and-so's wife is a very strong Sunni and she doesn't allow him to uh, come to these meetings. They had a jalsa when I was there. So I said, I blame the man. And they said, why do you blame the man? And I said, Quran says, la ikraha fiddin. There is no compulsion in religion. But this man forces the ahmdi view of how to treat wives on his wife. She gives, he gives her a right to decide whether she should come here or not. I said, She's a Sunni, so he should say that I will treat you the way Sunni theology says, which is the wife has to obey the husband and if she doesn't, he can give her a good thrashing. <coughs> so I said, it's because he is violating la ikraha fiddin. There's no compulsion in religion and he is imposing the Lahori Ahmadi view of how to treat your wives that this problem has arisen. If he treated us according to her own theology. But women are regarded as second class citizens. It's only MDs that say men and women are equal. It's only MDs who allowed women to go out and get education. In 1930s, Lahori MD women were headmistresses of schools when other women weren't even leaving their, uh, their house. Yeah, I could go, go on. Um, I mean, for example, Al-Sunnat Wal-Jamaat believed that non-Muslims are unclean. You go to Pakistan, uh, Muhammad Ali is an example and he's experienced this himself. He 
um, hired a nurse who was a Christian to look after his, uh, his mum when she was ill. And one time some people came to ask her after uh, his mum and this nurse made them a cup of tea and they would not touch it. This dirty, unclean Christians. And you know, I can go to Pakistan and sell my British passport for £20,000 for someone to come in illegally and live with these ugh, dirty Christians. It's this hypocrisy. We believe everyone is equal. You know, God doesn't stop clean air or clean water or intelligence or beauty to go to someone who's not a Muslim. It's for him to decide what path he chooses and, um, and um, he will then answer for it. Again, you know, there, there are lots of things I could keep, uh, carry on for a long time. Jihad, the concept that has brought Islam into disrepute most has been the Sunni interpretation of Jihad. And Hazrat Saab, a hundred years ago, wrote specifically to who? The king of Afghanistan. And he said, I urge you to issue a diktat to say what the true significance of jihad is. If you don't, and listen to Hazrat word, your country is the one that will suffer most. And we've seen that. I mean, when you see these people who hire cars and mount pavements and run down uh, innocent people going home after work or whatever, do you think it brings Islam into disrepute or do you think people say, oh, that, that's a wonderful religion, this is what I should be doing, tomorrow I'll hire, a, he hired a car, I'll hire a van to try and uh, run down uh, 30 people, he only killed five. Islam has been brought into disrepute by the Sunni interpretation of Islam. And in every part of the world, they are now turning, when pressed and under pressure, they present the Lahore MD point of view. I'll give you, I'll end by giving you this example. The um, British Parliament held an inquiry into terrorism. And we made, they asked us and we made submissions about our view of jihad and so on. And uh, the uh, Amir, was it Amir or Assistant Amir of uh, Jamaat-e-Islami in Bangladesh sat there without blinking and he said, jihad does not mean you take the sword and you go out and kill people. Well, what has Maulana Maududi written in, in uh, his Tafimul Quran? Why did you call uh, uh, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad a kafir and a heretic when he wrote the same thing? Why did you call him a British stooge, stooge and a lackey for writing the, the, the same thing that jihad is not taking the sword and going out and killing white people? For all you know, that white person might be a Muslim. We have one sitting here. Everywhere in America, does any Muslim 
present the view, the, the interpretation of jihad, that the, the traditional interpretation of jihad, the interpretation of, interpretation of jihad given by Maulana Maududi and Pakistani Maulanas. Come on, if this is true Islam, I challenge you, go and do it. Do it in Germany, do it in England. See how many minutes you last. <coughs> Always to survive. Sunnis hide behind our interpretation and views. Not because they believe them, but because they have no choice. We've seen this in front of their presentations um, before the Human Rights Commission uh, <coughs> in Switzerland, before the UN Commission, um, I forget their name, in New York. All these things have been live streamed and I watched them, etc. So, if Islam is to survive, then it is important that we have a strong Lahori Amdi Jamaat that presents the true picture of Islam, the Islam that was brought by the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wa sallam, that was practiced and preached by the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wa sallam, and the Islam that was brought back to life by Hazrat Mirza Ghulam what else was the Messiah going to do when he came? The Holy Prophet says that if the Quran, the Quranic teaching had gone up to the heavens, he'll bring it back to earth and implement it. So this is why it's important to be a Lahori MD and this is why it's important to dedicate yourself to the task of taking the true picture of Islam to uh, all and uh, sundry. Mundasar has been waving his arms about for a long time. If he hadn't, I would have carried on for another hour. But, uh, I <laughs> yes, so I'll stop now.